This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 41 of the Your Morning Basket podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and I'm so happy that you are joining me here today. Well, sometimes when you're podcasting, you have a conversation that you really wish would just go on and on because it is so absolutely fascinating. And that was exactly what happened to me when I sat down to chat with Angelina Stanford all about fairy tales. It was such a good time. I learned so much and was just fascinated by what Angelina had to say. Now, in this episode of the podcast, we talk about exactly what fairy tales are why you should be reading them to your children, and the importance of fairy tales to every Christian. It's a great conversation, and we'll get on with it right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Lori Toys, years of learning fun for our little ones. And we have a special offer on Lori Toys when you shop Amazon.com and use the coupon code 30PAM at checkout. So are Lori Toys the best for playing or the best for learning? I think both. Lori makes creative, durable, and affordable toys that get handed down from generation to generation. I bet you've seen them. They're made with soft, pebble-textured crepe rubber, which makes them a real pleasure to hold and play with. They won't curl, crease, or tear. The colorful, tall stacker pegs are also the perfect size for little hands. My kids are loving the Action Stackers Little Builder Set. It is sparking their imaginations to build vehicles, houses for their toys, and even scenes from the stories we are reading. Everybody loves Lori because they also help children learn to count, recognize letters, and practice fine motor skills in a fun way. In this ever-changing world, Lori's wholesome classic learning toys foster creativity and educational development. We all want our kids to grow up happy and confident in their skills, and that's important to the folks at Lori also. Find a great selection of Lori toys at Amazon.com. Browse your options and save 30% on Lori toys by using the coupon code 30PAM at checkout. And now, on with the podcast. Angelina Stanford has a master's degree in English literature from the University of Louisiana and is one of the co-stars of the Searcy Institute Book Club podcast, Close Reads. In addition to homeschooling her own three children, Angelina has spent more than 20 years teaching in Christian classical education. She has a deep love for myths and fairy tales, and she joins us today to chat about how fairy tales can enrich morning time. Angelina, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a it's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you today. Well, I am so happy you're here. And I want to start off by kind of giving our listeners a definition of what we mean when we talk about a fairy tale. What is a fairy tale? Okay, that's a great question. Yeah, a fairy tale is actually more properly understood as a wonder story. Uh, when the Grimm brothers sat down to do their collection, the actual German word that they used was that it was a collection of wonder stories. And even like Nathaniel Hawthorne, when he retells uh, some of the myths and things, he calls his book a wonder book. So a fairy tale is really any kind of story that has a sense of wonder about it. And, you know, a lot of the stories that we consider fairy tales like Hansel and Gretel or Little Red Riding Hood don't actually have fairies in them. (laughs) So fairy tale has become sort of a shorthand phrase for really what is more largely understood to be a wonder story. And there are some specific traits of a fairy tale without which a story cannot be properly considered a fairy tale. And one of those traits is that it has to have a happy ending. A fairy tale, by definition, must have a happy ending. And if you ever read a fairy tale that does not have a happy ending, it's actually a cautionary tale and not a fairy tale. And sometimes those will all be in the same collection, but those are actually cautionary tales. Oh, that's so interesting. And by a happy ending, is it you know, always like the prince marries the princess, or does it sometimes just mean like redemption? Both of those things are true. There's a couple of different story patterns in a fairy tale. One is the prince and the princess story pattern. So those are always going to end with the prince and the princess getting married and having, you know, the happily ever after moment. And the other pattern is very often a child separated from their parent and will go through the story with very obstacle 
you know, various obstacles to overcome in order to return home. So those stories, the happy ending is usually a reconciliation between the parent and child. But it's always some kind of happy resolution, some part what we'd call in literary circles, a comic resolution. So it's, it, it would absolutely be a, a redemption. The orphan would find the home, the child is reunited with the parents, the princess marries the prince, that kind of thing. Sometimes a story, though, won't have that resolution. And so I'll give you an example of that if I can. A lot of the fairy tales that we are more familiar with as Americans are the French fairy tales, the Charles Perrault fairy tales. Now, he mm-hmm. actually, so he's not like the Grimm brothers. The Grimm brothers were folklorists who went out and collected the folk tales of the German people and put them in these collections for us. Charles Perrault did not do that. He actually was a writer at the time of the court of Louis XIV. And if you know anything about history, this would be Versailles. This would be one of the most decadent and moral periods of French history. Terribly, terribly decadent. And so what he did is he took these folk tales that were already in existence and he rewrote them as cautionary tales for very specific purposes, namely to give a warning and morality to this French court that he thought didn't have any morals. So, for example, a lot of people are surprised that Little Red Riding Hood actually has a redemptive ending. In the grim version of Little Red Riding Hood, the woodcutter comes in and he cuts open the wolf and out pops Little Red Riding Hood alive, out pops the grandmother alive, every, you know, everybody's restored. But in the French version, the story actually ends with the death of Red Riding Hood. <laughs> and that's because he's trying to make it a cautionary tale. And I just, I love this. This is just so hilarious to me. He actually puts a moral at the end of the story because you have to consider what the audience was, right? He's writing to the French court at Versailles. And the moral is, when a young girl gets into bed with a wolf, she's going to be eaten alive. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be a cautionary tale version of Little Red Riding Hood versus the true fairy tale in, in the Grimm's Brother where they come back, they're resurrected and you have the full redemptive ending. Okay, this is fascinating because I've often wondered, you know, why are there different versions of the same fairy tales? And it's because an author <laughs> would take the story and use it to suit their purposes, you know, and in the French versions, it was for morality. That's so fascinating. Oh, yeah, I think it's super. I think it's super interesting, too. I always find just stories are just so interesting in terms of cultural markers, because, you know, understanding the imagination of a people is, in my opinion, one of the greatest ways to understand a time period. And so it's just really, especially when talking about the same story and how it appears in different kinds of cultures and times and the different ways that it's using it. I mean, actually, it says a lot about our own time that we're fascinated in twists on fairy tales where the bad guy is recast as a good guy. <laughs> you know, we can mm. we can really get going in that. But it's it, the, all of that is very fascinating to me in terms of like a cultural marker. Oh, that is interesting. Well, OK, you obviously have a great passion for fairy tales. <laughs> so why do you think kids love fairy tales? Why do I think kids love it? Well, I think that kids love fairy tales for probably the same reason that, that I love them. There's a real sense in which a fairy tale is the purest form of story. The, the famous child psychologist Bruno Bettelheim wrote a book called The Uses of Enchantment, in which he did a long-term study about fairy tales and children. Because if you study the history of fairy tales, during the Enlightenment, fairy tales fell very much out of favor. It was actually a combination of uh, Enlightenment thinkers and Puritan thinkers who were very anti-fairy tales. The Enlightenment thinkers were like moderns, right? Children need facts, hard facts, right? You know, and why are you filling their head with nonsense stories? And the Puritans kind of had the same position, right? Like we should be doing real things, Bible stories, and not these fanciful stories. So fairy tales very much fell out of favor. And then over time, lots of arguments came around. They're too scary for kids. Uh, Kids need, you know, safer stories, quote unquote, realistic stories, all the same sorts of arguments that float around today. So Brutal Bettelheim This child psychologist did this very extensive study about children and fairy tales, and his insights are absolutely fascinating. He says that the inner landscape of a child is terrified already. The whole world is just huge and scary to them, and they have these fears, right? And they're real. Uh, Since abandonment by parents, uh, talking to strangers, getting Mm -hmm. lost and not being able to find your way out. These are deep, deep fears that kids have. And so Fairy tales are not scary to the kids because it is a representation of the fears that they already have. And so what they encounter in the fairy tale is not a foreign scary thing, but their own inner landscape. And in the fairy tale itself, 
those problems are solved. The child is reunited with the parent. The lost person can find their way out. The orphan does find their home. The child who gets into trouble with a stranger is rescued. And so their fears are actually satisfied and they get this really deep sense of a safety and comfort from these stories. He also goes on to talk about how this is something that really always kind of tickles me. He says that it's adults who have a strong sense of the need for mercy. It's children who like justice and they really like the inner justice in a fairy tale where good is rewarded and evil is punished. And they need these things because of their own fears. Chesterton, G.H. Chesterton, who has a lot to say about fairy tales, he puts it this way. If you don't read your child fairy tales, right, you don't take away the fear of dragons. You simply take away from them the promise that St. George will slay the dragon. And the child, that, that's what the child needs. The fear is already there. So I think there's a lot of answers to the question, why do children love fairy tales? But I think that's one of them, is that the fairy tale itself is deeply, deeply comforting to a child. And the older you get, I think you start to become disconnected with that part. Like over and over, I get asked the question, well, what about the weird parts of fairy tales? Because yeah. I, yes, there are some weird stuff in fairy tales. I have never, ever run across a kid who finds any of it weird. It's the parents. And I've had this experience where I'm reading a fairy tale out loud to my children. and I'm thinking, what the, this is nuts. What is going on? And this could not be weirder. And I look at my children, they're not even batting an eye, right? The, I mean, that's like, it's not weird to them at all. Every, because everything is weird to a kid, right? The fact that the grass is green and the sun rises and sets, like the whole world is just full of wonder and mystery and puzzlement and in a sense, enchantment. And so what they encounter in fairy tales is not any weirder <laughs> than any of the other things they're encountering as a, as a child. It's, it's really the, the adults who struggle with that weird stuff more than the kids. So... I could go on a long no, no. time about this. Yeah, I, I mean, I just think that kids find fairy tales deeply, deeply comforting in, in a way that they can't necessarily articulate. But definitely it, it, there's a sense of satisfaction in their souls. And I think that's part of the reason why they want to hear these stories over and over is that it's, you know, it's not the plot and the suspense that's driving the enjoyment of the story. There's something else going on there, namely that there's just a deep satisfaction going on in their soul. That's, that's such a great quote. I love that. Okay. But that does bring up a question for me, and we're going to kind of go back to the history of fairy tales for just a minute. Now, obviously, Perrault was writing fairy tales. You said the morality tales for the French court. So that would have been like he was taking these stories and writing them for older people. Am I correct? Like adults? Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay. But what about the Grimm brothers and the original fairy tales? Were those written for children or were those written for adults? Those were not written for children. Uh, fairy tales historically have been stories for adults by adults. But at some point, they around the time they fell out of fashion, they became more considered children's stories. But as we've studied it, children have done fine with the stories. Uh, but so and that's part of the reason why I said that my answer of why children like fairy tales is the same reason for why I like them. Like, right. I think it does the same thing for an adult as well. We still have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of fears, too, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, any parent that's ever lost sight of their child for a few minutes in a, in a grocery store knows, knows that deep fear of I just lost my child and my child's lost, you know. And so we have a lot of the same fears. And, and, and actually in literature, the archetype of being lost in the wilderness is a pattern you see in so many stories. I mean, it's the, it's the pattern that Dante uses to represent our spiritual lostness. And it's the same thing in a fairy tale. That's why you have a lot of people wandering around in the forest and I can't find my way out. And so there's a lot of uh, spiritual themes that are in fairy tales, too. So, it, so you can talk about, you know, just sort of these like childlike fears and the universal stories that are being told in the fairy tale. But then there's also the whole other realm of the spiritual side of things. You know, one of the things that one of the reasons that I think fairy tales are, are so incredibly important now more than ever is because living in the modern age, we have a tendency to think of what is real as what can be experienced through the senses, right? What I can see and touch and feel and hear and taste. For us, that is what is real. The problem with that then is that when that becomes your definition for what is real, where does that leave mm. things like God and justice and mercy and truth and beauty and goodness, right? We have lost touch as moderns with transcendent virtues and transcendent realities. And one of the things I like to say about fairy tales is fairy tales are not just true. They are truer than true. They are realer than real. 
because fairy tales help to remind us of that which is the realest reality, the transcendent, right? Fairy tales help us to remember that there is a mysterious reality behind what beyond what we can experience from the senses, right? That there is magic. This is an enchanted universe because God is in the universe, right? And it was a created universe, lovingly created. And there is meaning inherent in everything in the creation. And as moderns, we have lost touch of that so much. I mean, when we get into conversations where people say, well, I don't believe in God because I can't see him. Well, we have gotten right to the heart of this question, right? Is the only thing that's real that which you can experience with the senses? Or is there a greater reality that transcends the natural world? And that is what fairy tales constantly help us to remember and to stay in touch with is the greater spiritual reality, that which is realer than real. And so inherent in the very pattern of the story themselves is that fairy tales retell the gospel. Every single fairy tale tells the gospel story. They tell a variation of the gospel story. And really, I mean, it's just it's immeasurable variations. I am constantly confronted with yet a new variation. And I get all excited and giddy as I, I see a new aspect of the gospel story unfolding in these fairy tales. But it's deep within the pattern of the fairy tale itself. And that is because the gospel story itself is a fairy tale. <laughs> the two basic fairy tale patterns are that there is a princess and the princess has been endangered in some way, right? Sometimes it's the evil stepmother, sometimes it's a monster. But there are some obstacles that must be overcome. And the true prince is the only one that can mm. save the princess. So he overcomes the obstacles. He rescues her and then he marries her. And very often in these stories, there's some sort of death and resurrection moment, like Sleeping Beauty, right? Where she is asleep, which is a picture of death, and he kisses her and he wakens her. That is the gospel story because Christ is the bridegroom who comes to slay the dragon and redeem his bride from death. He resurrects her. His kiss brings her back to life. And the reason that these stories end with and they get married and they live happily ever after is because that is also the gospel story, because the gospel story does not end with the resurrection. It ends with the marriage supper of the lamb when Christ, the bridegroom, marries his bride and they have a celebration. That's why there's that pattern in these stories. And that's why it's so deeply satisfying to us. We need the prince to awaken the princess with that kiss. It has to happen. Our soul is longing for it because we know that's what's right. And the other variation of that, that's part of the gospel story as well, is that Adam and Eve in the garden are the children of God. And what happens in the fall, they are exiled, right? So you've got that story pattern, that's that fairy tale pattern of the parent and child have been separated. There's an exile, that relationship has been lost. And so you go through these fairy tale stories and obstacles are overcome. And finally, at the end, the child is reunited with the parent because that is also what Christ does, right? He comes to marry the bridegroom and rescue the princess and slay the dragon. But he also comes to restore that lost parent-child relationship. And so you see all of these variations of the gospel story in these fairy tales themselves. And it's just fascinating. And so and that's why I think we feel that deep, deep satisfaction with that. And they lived happily ever after. People will sometimes say, well, fairy tales are so unrealistic. You know, they're teaching kids terrible things. They're teaching kids that once you get married, life is smooth sailing. No, that is not what a fairy tale is teaching, because that's not how fairy tales work. A fairy tale is not a marriage handbook. A fairy tale is pointing us to the transcendent reality of the spiritual realm. And in that reality, the bridegroom is going to marry the bride, and it is going to be happily ever after, eternally. And so it's not a marriage handbook, but it is absolutely pointing to those transcendent spiritual realities that our souls desperately long for, as, as I've said. And I think that's why children and adults and everyone, I mean, I personally get teary-eyed at the end of some fairy tales because it speaks so deeply to the, my own longings in my soul. And when you get to the end, you know, a truly satisfying story, when you get to the end, you feel this is how it should be. This is as it should be. This is right. Okay. And that, that's the moment that you feel that satisfaction in your soul. I am never going to look at a fairy tale the same way again. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> that was so awesome. And I do find it, I find it really interesting that backing up just a little bit to you talking about the, them being the wonder stories and the kids really relating to what's in the story. 
whereas an adult might be starting to look askance at it, that they were written for adults. But then it's the child in us, I guess, that it really appeals to. You know, Jesus says you have to be like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I always think about that when I read fairy tales, right? Like fairy tales help us to regain that childlike sense of wonder that the whole universe is filled with meaning and everything in the world is meant to point us to the spiritual realities. It's everything. This is why Christ says, look at the mustard seed, consider, you know, consider the bee, right? He's always pointing to nature to say, this is in nature because it tells my story. And that's what fairy tales do too. They're constantly reminding us that the whole world is magical and it tells us about this huge story and reality beyond what we can experience with the senses. Well, speak- so I think we have to regain that sense of wonder and fairy tales help us do that. Nice. Okay, well, speak for just a minute. What? I mean, you've obviously made a great <laughs> apologetic here for fairy tales, but what would our kids be missing out on if we only read them realistic stories? Honestly, if you have to, I mean, <laughs> I think fairy tales are so critical that it is more important to read those kinds of stories than it is realistic stories. Uh, G.K. Chesterton also talks about this. Several several of the, of the big writers, Lewis and... Um, G.K. Chesterton and Edith and Nesbeth has a lot to say about fairy tales. They all sort of make this point that realistic stories are not realistic, that that is a misnomer. And that's what's so deceptive about it, because oftentimes stories which go by the term realistic are really naturalistic and materialistic. That is, that they present a universe that is only real in terms of being what matter is what is real. Nature is what is real. What, what is real is what can be experienced through the senses. And they completely ignore the spiritual realm, right? And so they are getting a deceptive view of reality because there is a reality, the eternal reality, the truest truth is beyond what we can experience with the senses. And so we must constantly engage part of that. And I think especially in modern times where I mean, it's really a battle. The spiritual realm, the transcendent reality is constantly being denied. So we have to work very hard to overcome that. And if you get caught up in these quote unquote realistic stories, it's very easy to give in to the deception that what you see is the only thing that exists. And so I think that if you only read realistic stories, you're going to be giving your children a very skewed view of reality. And one of the things I like to say is, you know, As adults, we tend to think of the Bible as a work of theology, and we've sort of thought through it, and we have all of these very rational, philosophical propositions that we've pulled out and that we believe to be true. The truth is, the Bible is just a really weird story, (laughs) you know? And and if you really get into it, sometimes we're kind of shocked at some of the weird stuff in, in the Bible. And again, it's for the same reason, right? Because the Bible is not a realistic story. You have giants being fought and defeated. You have dragons being slayed. You, you have all of these fairy tale elements. You have people getting swallowed by whales. And there's a lot of, you know, what we would consider to be fantastical elements. A lot of reasons why moderns struggle with accepting the Bible as being a quote unquote true book, right? Because again, they're going back to those definitions of what is real and what is true is what can be experienced through the senses or what can be verified in a laboratory, which is just another way of saying only the natural world it is what is what is real. So I feel like fairy tales and wonder stories in general have to be an essential part of education because we must constantly be reconnecting with the truest truth, which is that the transcendent reality, that is the real reality, much more so than anything you can get in a quote unquote realistic book. Okay, well, I'm going to bring up some objections here. What about the violence? What about the magic and the witches? Because the Bible clearly says we don't, you know, we're not supposed to mess with those. So why would we introduce these stories that have, you know, Cinderella's sisters like cut off their own feet to try to get yes, them to fit do. into I love that? And the crows come and peck out their eyes. And, you know, why would what what do you say to people who object, you know, on those grounds? Okay, so you got a couple of different issues there. You talked about the violence and then you talked about the magic. There's almost never actually any magic in a fairy tale, if you read a true fairy tale. And witches, witches are, that's often a word that's interchangeably used with just a bad woman character. One of the archetypes you'll see in a story, in a fairy tale, is that you almost have, always have a two opposing female characters. So you'll have a good mother who's often the deceased mother, and then you'll have a bad mother that is usually either going to be in the form of a witch 
are in the form of an evil stepmother. And in terms of the story, they have the same function. That is that it's, it's a threat to the child. It's the false mother idea. And you also have a lot of false home ideas in fairy tales as well. So part of the obstacle that the protagonist in a fairy tale has to overcome is recognizing the difference between false homes and real homes and false mothers and real mothers. It's a way of having discernment about what is truly good and what is truly a deception. So witches, in fairy tales, witches are not, I can't even think of a fairy tale or a witch is performing actual magic, not in, not in the real fairy tale, at least not in the sense that, that we speak of magic. And also, again, those characters are always representative of evil and are always condemned and always get their just desserts at, at the end. So that's just a matter of having a character being able to represent evil and you have to show them doing something evil. But there's certainly never a glorification of magic or, or anything like that in these stories. The other issue is the violence. And again, that is a concern that a lot of moderns have. And so you'll, you'll run into a lot of cleansing of fairy tales, mm-hmm. shall we say, the Disneyfication of fairy tales where they take out a lot of these violent elements. So again, going back to the work that the child psychologist Bruno Bettelheim did, where he says this is a huge mistake. This is a huge mistake that the children are not in any way put off by the violence because their own imaginations, you know, you know the kinds of things kids are afraid of, kidnappers. And I mean, I just remember being a kid and having so many intense fears, right? And my own children having these intense fears. And so he thinks that we do discredit to the fears that our children have when we don't acknowledge how terrifying their own fears are and then offer them a comfort for that, right? Like, you know, the sorts of things that we tell our children that God is watching out for you or your guardian angel is watching out for you. I mean, in terms of storytelling, there's not a whole lot of difference between saying your guardian angel is watching out for you or that, you know, fairies are, are watching out of you. It's the same sort of idea. And I, I don't mean to put those on, on the same level, but I'm speaking metaphorically. And, you know, one of the things that I think about is, you know, children lie awake at night scared about the monster in their closet, right? They're terrified of the monster in their closet. And our temptation is to go in there and say there's no such thing as monsters. That's not a real comfort to a child because the truth is the world is a scary place. It's a scary place for adults. And while there might not be a literal monster in their child's closet, right, there are monsters in the world. There is evil lurking around. I mean, the Bible says sin is lurking at your door, ready to jump on you. And so metaphorically, your child is right to be afraid that there's something in the closet that wants to jump out and devour him. That is true. And so the comfort that we offer them is not to say there's no such thing as monsters, but should be to say, we serve a God. A God loves you who is greater than any monster. And I can promise you that evil will be overcome and that Jesus will slay the dragon. And we can speak that way to it. So in terms of the violence, I point to all of these authors, Lewis and Tolkien and Chesterton and Bruno Bettelheim and the whole, the whole gang who have extensively said that you know, children are not negatively affected by the violence, quite, quite the reverse, that they find it great comforting because they meet their own fears in there and they see those fears conquered. And so it ends up being a very comforting experience to them. And the thing about the violence in Cinderella, I'm glad that you brought that up, is one of the variations on the gospel theme that Cinderella shows us is those are actually images of works righteousness. So the prince shows up with the slipper, right? But only the true princess can have the slipper. So they mutilate themselves in an attempt to earn that, to earn the position right? Instead of being true and virtuous of heart, which Cinderella is, they try to fake it. And so that actually taps into some very deep story archetypes. Dante really gets into this as well, about how any attempt to earn salvation is ultimately self-destructive. And so a lot of fairy tales actually have a self-mutilation theme, but that speaks to a deep spiritual thing that's going on. The way that we are constantly engaged in self-destructive behavior, trying to earn our salvation, right? We all have this longing for God and longing for reconciliation with God. And we do a lot of terrible things to ourselves in the attempt to earn that, right? Instead of just accepting the gift that the prince offers us. So, you know, again, part of what happens with the fairy tale too, and part of the reason that we struggle with realism, I mean, we struggle with the violence issue is that we're such moderns. We keep reading this stuff like it's realistic. And we think that a child is going to read it like it's realistic. But a child is much more able to read metaphorically. Adults, we have to work a little more at that. But fairy tales are very much meant to be read metaphorically. Sort of violence and evil that you encounter there is to be understood metaphorically. And I think the kids have a much easier time with that than we do. Well, I'm going to poke back at you a little bit because, you know, 
I've read Cinderella a number of times, and I don't know that I ever got that, even when I was a kid. So is this like working at me on a subconscious level or something? Yes, yes, because I give webinars a lot on how to understand the story archetypes that are happening in these fairy tales. And I'll go into all of these details about how Snow White is deep, deep in its understanding of the nature of original sin. And that's all of what Snow White is about. And we'll get into Cinderella and works righteousness and all this. And all the time, parents will say, you know, I never saw it before. Should I explain to my child that this is what it means? And the answer is always no, no, that I believe the pattern of the story itself works on you, even if you cannot articulate it. The story itself is so powerful. You know, years ago, I remember Cindy Rollins telling me, and this was hard to swallow. She said, when you read a Bible story, don't explain it. Don't moralize. That was so hard for me because I gave my kids what I called the Monday morning sermon. And I would just get going, man. I was like an old school Puritan preacher, like three hours could go by and I was just getting worked up, right? And my kids are all dutifully sitting there paying attention. And that was so convicting to me when she said that. She said, you have to just tell the story and let the Bible story do its work on your child. I actually think that is a true principle about many, many stories, including fairy tales, that there is something very mysterious that happens to a person's soul with a story. And I think if we really think about the stories that we have deeply connected with, we know that that's true, right? It has a transformative effect on us, even when we don't really understand how. These books that we go back to again and again, and that are very special to us, that we relate to in some way, I think that the story pattern itself has a transformative effect on the child. I don't think they have to know that's what's going on. To rec- to be, I don't think they have to articulate it in some kind of sophisticated scholarly way to recognize, though, every child will recognize, though, that Cinderella's sisters did something horrible and unnatural and it failed. They all get that, right? Even if they don't understand all the theological implications of it, they understand it doesn't work. <laughs> okay. You can't, you can't make your foot fit the shoe. You're either the true princess or you're not. Right, right. Okay, that's so fascinating. So I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say you would like, not edit fairy tales as you're reading aloud to kids, and you would frown upon their only exposure being the Disney versions of these stories. Very much so. And you know what? I'm going to tell this story because I love it so much. If you can imagine this, when the Disney Snow White came, and this was the first Disney fairy tale that they did, and they really, Walt Disney almost bankrupted the company and the money that he spent on this film. So this was a huge, huge project, a huge deal. So when the movie premiered, you're never going to believe this because I just love the, the, vis- the image of this. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien bought tickets and went to see this movie. Oh, my gosh. Right? Like, <laughs> I just like the image of the two of them, like headed to the theater to go see Snow White just blows my mind. So they went. And of course, they hated it. Yeah. <laughs> they hated it. And Tolkien, as you can imagine, hated it because he didn't like that the dwarves were buffoons. <laughs> which He was right because dwarves always represent wisdom. In, in literature. So it was just terrible. They're, they're all these, they're the comic relief of the story instead of being the wise protectors of Snow White that they're supposed to be in the actual story. So they did not like it. And they both felt that it was not a true fairy tale. And so I would agree with that. And so a lot of times when I talk about fairy tales, people who are listening to me, their only exposure has been Disney. And so it's very, very hard to see these patterns in Disney because they are so significantly changed. And especially older kids who, if their only exposure to fairy tales have been Disney, a lot of times it is so fascinating to watch them be exposed to a true, like Grimm's brother version of things. They are shocked at how different it is, how gritty it is. And they're usually pretty excited about what they encounter there because it's so different. I mean, Disney is this little kid. It's cartoonish and it's they just take the heart right. They just take the heart right out of those things. I mean, so the Disney version of Cinderella, you would watch that and think that the reason Cinderella gets chosen is because she's beautiful and the sisters are ugly. But in the Grimm version, the stepsisters are never called ugly. They're not ugly. They're very beautiful. What is ugly about them is how mean they are and wicked and jealous and self-centered. So what is ugly about them is their lack of virtue, not their physical appearance. That's the kind of dangerous things that happen in a Disney movie, right? Because we don't, 
I mean, think about the culture. I mean, we hardly want our daughters to think that the message of Cinderella is be beautiful, right? Mm. The message is be virtuous, be good. That is what captures the prince's attention and heart is her good heart, not her physical appearance. So that's just one small example of the danger of the Disneyfication of fairy tales. So yes, I have, I have a lot of concerns about that being someone's sole exposure to fairy tales. And all I can say is I am just so glad that Lewis and Tolkien never got to see the Little Mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think once was it Lewis, you know, it's so fitting for their personalities. Tolkien was just like, I hated it. And Lewis was like, I could tell it was made with a lot of artistry and skill. Like he's trying to give this political, like I appreciate the technology, but it's not really a fairy tale. Like he's trying to give this political answer. I, I just love it. It just makes me laugh so hard to think about those two guys going to the movies and seeing that film. Oh, wow. Goodness. Now, you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but so you're telling me that there's actually an appeal to teens for fairy tales when you start introducing them to the new versions or to the original versions. They're not going to necessarily sit around and roll their eyes. That hasn't been my experience. They're usually very intrigued. And of course, you know, if you're talking about boys, pick out some of the more violent ones. They get into it. They <laughs> Well, give me some recommendations. If you know, if we have some moms who are listening and they're sitting here going, wow, okay, we've been a little derelict in our fairy tale reading here in our household and, and I want to introduce it, but the kids are older. What are some that might actually pique their interest and get them involved? Well, it could be a lot of fun if they have seen the Disney versions to so just start with those. Just let them see. And, you know, the uh, while I'm not a fan of just telling kids what they mean, I do think that you can ask really great questions about comparison and which will get the children to make a lot of these observations on their own. So if they've seen the Disney versions, why not have them read the Grimm and then ask them what was different? And it'll be really interesting to see the sort of things that they come up with. So I've been doing consulting work with the school, and they decided to introduce some fairy tales. One of the teachers actually just told me that, that was her experience with the class, that she was so surprised. So they read Snow White on my recommendation, and the kids' only exposure before that had been Disney Snow White. And they were just shocked at the difference. And they, she said they had a fantastic discussion in class with a lot of the kids saying, well, this was different. And, and so I, this, I think, was showing us what sin does to us and the way it kind of ensnares us and lures us in, which the fairy tales do a great job of that. I think fairy tales do a great job of showing the, the seductive nature of evil. That's why you have a lot of those images like Candy House. I mean, what is a greater temptation <laughs> than that, right? So yeah, I think that would be actually be a really great way to start is just let them start comparing and see the sorts of observations they make and just see what they make of the difference. And why is that in the original story? And one of the questions that I always like to ask about any story I'm reading is, why has this lasted so long? Why do people keep going back to these stories? What is it about them that speaks to the human condition that people keep going back to these stories? And a lot of times the answers that kids come up with are, are very surprising. Kids can be really shockingly insightful sometimes. Well, you know, that really brings up, it brings up an interesting question in my mind, which is, you know, so Disney obviously went back to these stories because he read them and he, it was speaking to him in some way. And then to do what they did to them, do you think they realized what they were doing or do you think it was an accident? I really don't know. I mean, I, I'm not one to think that there's sinister plots behind everything. I mean, <laughs> I, I know that he, I know that he loved, I know that Walt Disney really loved Snow White and that was a real passion to him. And some of the things about that movie are visually really quite stunning. I have a problem in general with visual representations of stories for a lot of different reasons, because part of what needs to happen when we connect to a story is our imagination needs to be engaged. Like we need to be imagining what evil looks like in our own minds, right? Not what someone else imagines that it looks like because the connection might not be as strong there. So I've got some issues with that too. But I doubt that there was like a plot about Cinderella. I doubt that they're sitting in the meeting, you know, like, let's, <laughs> let's make something that glorifies female beauty. I think it just, when they sat around saying, and this is difficult, right? How do we visually represent that these people are evil? Well, it was just, it was just easy to make them ugly. But that was just the easy way out of, of the storytelling. You know, it was much more difficult to show them behaving in an ugly way. So 
I imagine that that's the sort of thing that happened. And also that, that, you know, you didn't have a bunch of folklorists making that movie. You had cartoonists. And so they were much more interested in the visual representation side of things. That, that would be my guess. And probably also some cultural pressure at that time to remove a lot of the violence of these. I mean, obviously, they changed the ending. Yeah. They changed the ending of Cinderella. And so uh, what is lost there is that while you have the happy ending of the prince and Cinderella being married, what you lose is the final judgment element of the story pattern, right? It's not done enough that good is rewarded. Bruno Bettelheim tells us that a child desperately needs to see evil punished, which of course, that's part of the gospel story as well, right? Good is rewarded, the saved are taken by their savior, but then, you know, there's the final judgment, right? There's retribution. That's also part of the story. And Bruno Bettelheim says it's an essential part of the story for children. So they take that out of that Cinderella because in the Grimm's version, of course, Cinderella extends forgiveness to her sisters, but then the birds come and pluck the sister's eyes out, which if you ask a kid, what does that remind you of? Probably they'll tell you the verse in Matthew where it says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And the sin of the sisters was jealousy. Mm. <laughs> and so their eye did cause them to sin. They were jealous about what they saw. And so their eyes were then plucked out. And so there's this sense of final judgment and poetic justice. And, you know, it all sort of works together. And it's important that it's not vengeance. Cinderella forgives, right? right. But right. in the cosmic sense, evil is punished, right? This is what happens. That is just part of the natural outlay of this story. You have all of those different elements. Good is rewarded. Part of what good does is it forgives those who have done evil to it. But then there's a whole flip side of the story too, right? Which is that evil also is punished in the end. So you have all of those different aspects playing through a fairy tale. And so unfortunately, the Disney version, it takes away that element. And that's part of the reason why fairy tales, I think, get such a bad rap that yeah. you think fairy tales are just about the guy gets the girl. But there's so much more. There's so much more going on. We've just take, we've gutted them. You know, we've taken that out. I mean, the original story to story of Cinderella has her going out and praying and the birds, you know, the animal helpers that come. That's really a representation of the Holy Spirit, right? The bird comes down and that's very scriptural. And that's part of what's happening, why the bird plucks out the eyes, because it's the bird that has answered the prayer of Cinderella. There's no fairy godmother in the Grimm's Cinderella. It's she prays and then the dove brings her the dress, you see. And so it's an answered prayer. And so it's just the Disney version just guts it, guts all that good stuff right out of it. Yeah, but the animals clean your house in the Disney version. <laughs> OK, I'm going to admit that I would to I'm totally for animal helpers coming, <laughs> coming to, to clean my house. I'm, I'm fine with that. OK, well, you've already touched on this just a little bit, but I, I want to go deeper and you've touched on it in that you've said, you know, don't try to explain this to your kids. But if you're sitting down and you're doing morning time with your kids and you're going to read them a fairy tale, what does that quote unquote lesson look like? That's a good question. I think you have a lot of different ways that you could handle it and you don't always have to do it the same way. I think sometimes you could just read the story. I think it's totally appropriate to have them narrate. I think, in fact, that, that would be really interesting to see what are the different elements of the story that the different children connect to. You know, you might have some that connect to the more happy ending elements. You might have others that connect more to the violence. You might have some that connect more to the judgment element, you know, evil being judged and conquered. And that would probably give you actually a lot of insight into, into your different children and kind of where they are. So you could do that. And I also think that it's very useful to use questions of comparison especially when you start asking what's different. You know, you read Snow White and you read Hansel and Gretel. There's almost nothing the same about those stories. And as you ask questions, though, you can begin to see that not every fairy tale ends with a wedding, right? Sometimes a fairy tale ends with a child being reconciled to its parent. And there's a lot of interesting discussions that can come out of that. So I think it's fine to discuss them and a lot really, really good to ask comparison. And I mean, that's just a really simple way to put a lesson, right? You just, you read the story and how is this fairy tale like the one we read yesterday? How is it not like that one we read yesterday? And then I think that the discussion would kind of flow organically from that. I wouldn't even be opposed necessarily to making like a chart, right? I'm opposed to like charting plot elements. I'm opposed to that. But if you wanted to ask them what was the same and what was different, and then as they said it themselves, kind of marking it, that could be a lot of fun to see how many different repeating things in fairy tales they discover, right? So like the number three comes up tons of times in fairy tales. People are always doing things three times. People are also often doing things seven times. There's lots of biblical numbers that come up, lots of images of the Trinity, lots and lots of story 
elements that are repeated in fairy tales that have very, very heavy symbolic, metaphorical and spiritual meanings. So you know, that could be fun, too, just to have them sort of keep a list of the things that they're observing about these fairy tales. And then from that, you can ask why. Why do things keep happening three times? It'd be really interesting to see what kind of ideas your kids would come up with for what is so significant about the number three. Why are we always seeing the three obstacles, the three attempts, the three, the three, the three, right? And where else are we seeing the three? And you could even relate it to maybe some of the Bible stories like, wait a minute, so David just defeated a giant. I mean, that, that actually, that whole archetype is so fairy tale, right? That there's a threat to the land and the untested, unproven kind of nobody warrior shows up and, you know, he wants to, he, I can do it. I can slay the dragon. I can kill the giant. And everybody kind of laughs at it. And then he does. And in a fairy tale, anytime that happens, that character always becomes the king. That's the reward for mm. freeing the land of the threat. And so, you know, there's all those great fairy tale patterns in so many of the Bible stories. So that could be a lot of fun, too, to pick up on a lot of those things. So, yeah, I would say definitely use the comparison. Just how, And that's such a, I mean, that doesn't require any prep work, right? Just how is this like right. this? And there will also be really, I love fairy tales because fairy tales really tap into a lot of Charlotte Mason ideas, right? So you can develop that habit of attention by asking, how is this like these other stories? And so they'll be paying attention to the details. In fact, one of my favorite Bruno Bettelheim quotes, going back to our child psychologist, about reading fairy tales. Uh, the reason that I love this quote so much is because I feel like he's quoting Charlotte Mason, but he's never even heard of Charlotte Mason. He says, when, when asked, do you explain to a child what a fairy tale means? He says this, a child will get from the fairy tale what the child needs. Mm. And so he does not think that you should explain it. In fact, he goes on to say this, which I think is fascinating, that if a child reads a fairy tale and latches onto something that's meaningful to him, but you think, oh, you got that all wrong. He says, be patient, don't correct it, that eventually they'll reread it and realize, oh, I got that all wrong. And that is the moment when the child realizes I'm growing, I'm learning, I understand things now that I did not understand six months ago or a year ago. And I love that quote because that is, that's true for me constantly as a reader, right? I'm sure it's true for you too. Every time I reread something, whether it's a Bible passage or a novel, and I see something and I have that moment of, oh, wait, I totally didn't get that before now. And then you have that feeling of, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm becoming wiser. And so he thinks, you know, don't rob your child of that experience of realizing I'm learning and I'm becoming wiser, that children need that too. So I just love that. Well, and that takes a lot of pressure off of the mom too. To have to, if you, you don't have to jump in there and explain everything, you know, right? then you don't feel like you have to be prepared to jump in there and explain everything. You can just read the story and enjoy it with your children and let them take from it what they will. And so yes. and it can be a challenge too when they get something wrong. Okay, I'll tell you this. This was, I took this to heart after Cindy Rollins said, don't explain Bible stories. So I read, I think my son was seven at the time. I read the story of Samson and Delilah. And when I was finished, I said, so what do you think that story is about? And he leaned back so confidently and said, never trust your wife. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't say anything. And eventually he figured out that was wrong. And so he, he had his moment. But, you know, that was an act of faith on my part, hearing him get that completely wrong. So <laughs> you, have, you have to trust the process. You know, he'll, they'll eventually figure it out. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's funny. Okay. so. We know now why we should read fairy tales, and we have an idea of how we should go about doing it and which ones we should avoid, uh, which versions we should avoid. So can you recommend a couple of anthologies or collections of fairy tales that you think would be good to start with? Well, I'm a big fan of Grimm, and I also really like the Andrew Lang fairy tales. He's also a folklorist, so I tend to like the folklore. So the Andrew Lang, the different color, you know, the red fairy book, the blue fairy book, those are really good. And you can start with the more classic traditional fairy tales, you know, your Snow White and your Little Red Riding Hood and Hansel and Gretel and all those kind of, you know, ones that American audiences are pretty familiar with. And But don't be afraid to branch out into some weird ones that you've never heard before. And also don't be afraid to jump into other cultures. You know, I've got friends who's, who love reading Chinese fairy tales and things like that. Too. I've read some of those collections. They're very interesting. And that's also really interesting, too, to see the same stories in different countries and the way that they play out. I've got lots of different collections like that. So that's fun too. 
So yeah, a lot of times people will message me or something and say, no, so we've read Grimm and we've read Lang. Where do, where do we go from there? Um, there's lots of other places to go. I'm a big fan of A Thousand and One Nights, the Middle Eastern fairy tales. Those are a lot of fun. And so those are pretty dark. <laughs> um, but those were some special favorites of mine when I was a child. So I'm very fond of those as well. But um, and yeah, you- I mean, just, just jump in anywhere, really. Do you find that the fairy tales from the other cultures point to the same truths that you've been talking about the European fairy tales point to? I do. And that is that is one of the fascinating things for me. It's one of the ways in which I think that that these stories are just imprinted in our hearts. I truly believe that this is the story that God is telling in the universe, right? The story of the child being reconciled to the parent and the child that the prince is going to slay the dragon and rescue the princess. This is the story of reality and it's imprinted in our hearts. And so I think that every time we tell a story, we cannot help but tell that story because it's the story inside of us. And we just keep telling variations of that same story. And for me, that's that if you want to talk about evidence, for me personally, that is tremendous evidence of the truth of the gospel is that it is inescapable. It is just inherent in human expression. And even when people try to not tell that story, they end up telling that story. And it's absolutely fascinating to me. Okay. And you're actually working on a book on this very topic, aren't you? I am. Yes. Tell us a little Uh, bit about that. Well, so uh, my basic thesis is that, as I said, every story is a retelling of the gospel, even when it's not, it's deliberately trying not to. So I go through every kind of story in this book, myths and fairy tales, the epics, medieval romance, all the way through nihilistic stories and naturalistic stories and postmodern stories. And I show how each of these stories is inescapably telling the story of the gospel in some variation. So even if the authors try not to. Yep. Oh, fascinating. It's inescapable. That is just absolutely fascinating. And we're going to look for that book probably next summer. That is the expected, Lord willing, <laughs> release date. We'll have a launch for that in July of 2018. I'm about halfway through writing it right now. It's a lot, a lot of research. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. Well, we will but it's a lot of fun. look for that. Well, Angelina, you know, you warned me at the beginning. <laughs> and I I tell you I could sit here and talk to you all night long about this this is absolutely fascinating and I just want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your passion about fairy tales and what these stories mean so thank you very much I appreciate that it's been a lot of fun talking to you and if your listeners want to get more in depth they can go over to my website angelinastanford.com and sign up for my mailing list because I do give webinars where I go through a specific fairy tale. So I've done Snow White and I will, by the time this airs, we'll have also done Hansel and Gretel. And I just go through and show you every single detail in the story and how it is telling the gospel story and a variation on that. So I've got a whole series that I'm, I'm working on. So I hope to do quite a few more of those. Love it. And we will put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. And I'm going to go over and enter my email address. So <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Well, thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. If you would like links to any of the books or resources that Angelina and I spoke about today on the podcast, you can find them on the show notes for this episode. And those are at pambarnhill.com forward slash YMB41. You can find everything you need over there. And we'll be back again in another couple of weeks with another great Your Morning Basket interview. Until then, keep seeking truth, goodness, and beauty in your homeschool day. Mm